You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good morning. Good to see everybody today. I, I believe that one of the high points of Sunday morning is when we gather around the Word of God because that is when God actually speaks to our hearts through his spirit, through his word. And uh, so I wanna pray that he'll do that. I'm gonna lead you through just a personal prayer that you can be praying this morning. So I'll give you what to pray for and you pray for that and you pray for the next thing and then I'll close, okay? So let's just, let's bow our heads and let's pray. What do you believe about God today? What do you believe about God? And tell him that, tell him what you appreciate about him. Scripture tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so ask God to search your heart, and if there's anything you need to confess and agree with him that you've sinned, just tell him about that and thank him for forgiving you. Scripture tells us that we honor God by giving thanks in all things. Tell him one thing you're thankful for and thank him for that today. Finally, ask him to give you ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to trust him and obey in what he wants to say to you this morning. Thank you, Father, for the word which performs your work in us who believe. We pray that you will teach us this morning. I pray that you will speak through me. My trust is not in myself, but in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a question for you this morning. I, I want you to imagine that it's the end of your life. What would you need to see in order to conclude that you lived your life well, what would you need to see? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning as we conclude 1 Corinthians 15, where we're looking at how believing that you will live forever changes the way you live your life now. And and we've looked at how it, it changes the way we handle our money, 
We've looked at how it changes the way we deal with worries about our health. And finally today, uh, I want to talk about how believing you'll live forever changes your purpose in life and why you're here. That's where we're going today. We're in 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and in chapter 15, Paul talks about the resurrection. Apparently, there were some Corinthians who believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They just didn't believe they would rise from the dead. And Paul wants to show them what an integral part of that gospel that is. So in the first paragraph, he explains how vital Christ's resurrection is to the gospel. And then in the second paragraph, how Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. That because Jesus rose, we will rise. And then Paul shows in the third paragraph how you've got to believe that to live the Christian life. Christian life is impossible if you don't believe you're going to live forever. And in the fourth paragraph, he explains what kind of bodies we'll have. And finally, in the paragraph we're going to look at this morning, we're going to talk about when all this will happen. When will you get your new body? Okay, so that's where we're going today, and then we'll talk about how that applies to, to lives right now. Paul writes in verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That's why we need a new body. The, the kingdom of God is, is when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And it will be an eternal, imperishable kingdom. And that's why you and I need a new body. We have imperishable, eternal spirits because our spirits are in union with Jesus now. But we need a new body, which is not corruptible and perishable. That's why you're going to need a new body. So when's that going to happen? Well, verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. A mystery in the Bible is not a whodunit. A mystery in the Bible is something that has been previously hidden, but now has been made known. And the Old Testament talks about the resurrection, but doesn't give us much information about it. And Paul fills in some of those gaps now. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, which I think is a great motto for the nursery um, here on Sunday school. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> But what Paul's really saying there is he's saying sleep is your body dying. That's how the Bible tells that we will not all physically die, but we will all physically be changed. In other words, there'll be people who come back with Jesus who died and come back, and there'll be people who are here on earth when Jesus arrives. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So this will take place instantaneously. You and I will get our new bodies in an instant of time when Christ returns, when the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. So what's the last trumpet, and when does it occur? In the Old Testament, trumpets were used to call people together, either for worship or for battle. And the scriptures talk about this last trumpet will signal the, the incoming of the kingdom of God. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, Paul writes, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. 
hardest thing about losing someone you love is the fear that you'll never see them again. Isn't that true? That you just feel like there's this, this great chasm between you that you'll never hear them laugh or talk to them or hold them again. And Paul says it's natural to grieve for those who die. But I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope of ever seeing their loved ones again. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus will return with all the people, the spirits of all the people who have died, and they will instantly have new bodies as their bodies are raised from the dead. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We will all be together forever with Christ in new bodies. So the last trumpet, whatever we know about it, it's, it's when the kingdom of God commences in this world and it commences with the church being raised imperishable to live with Christ on this earth. Now, Christians have debated, does that happen before Christ returns to judge the world and, and, and to defeat all of his enemies and establish the kingdom? Does it happen at the same time? And the authoritative answer is, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but anyway, the last trumpet signals the beginning of God's kingdom on earth. Back to 1 Corinthians. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. Since flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, we need a new body to live on the earth with Jesus. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And that's from Isaiah 25, 8, where it says, he, the Lord of hosts, will swallow up death at all times. When we see the resurrection, our greatest enemy will be defeated. And not just defeated, but all the damage that death has done will be reversed as if death never existed. Our great enemy will be defeated. And then Paul quotes another great promise from Hosea, O oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Up until the time that Jesus rose from the dead, death's winning streak was complete. Every human being who ever lived died. Nobody got out of here alive. Now, I, I know there's Enoch and, and Elijah, um, whom God took before they had, they took to heaven before they had physical death. I don't think he took their bodies. That's my own view of that. Death's winning streak has been undisputed. And even after Jesus died and rose again, 
Every person, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, everybody dies physically, right? But on the day that Jesus raises us imperishable, never to die again, death's unbroken string of victories ends. And then we will say, oh, death, where is your sting? I, I like this, that Hosea pictures death like a poisonous insect. And its stinger is what it uses to kill. And it's like God has plucked that stinger, so now death has no more power to affect us. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Why is death victorious over every human? Because every human sins, right? And the wages of sin is death, right? Because death separates us from God and, and who is the source of our life. What's Paul mean when he says the power of sin is the law? The sting of death is sin, we get that. What gives death its power is our sin. But what does he mean by the, the power? Uh, uh, the power of sin is the law. We've been in this building for over 20 years. And nobody has ever broken one of these big windows out of MacArthur here. But what do you suppose would happen if we put a sign up on the window, don't break this window? What do you think would happen? It'd be broken within a week, wouldn't it? Why? Sin is rebellion. But as long as I don't have something to rebel against, sin remains invisible. You can't see it. It's not until there's a law that sin becomes alive. And you can't tell me what to do. Right? You ever feel that way? I mean, you're happy until there's a rule. And when there's a rule, it begins to bug you. And that's why religion can't save anybody. Our problem is not ignorance of the law. Our problem is sin. sin. The law can't cure sin. All the law can do is reveal it. And not only does it reveal it, it makes it worse. Because the power of sin is the law. And that's why the worst people in the Bible are the religious people. They're the people who crucified Jesus. And they thought they were more righteous than anybody else. Religion can't save anybody because religion just tells you where you failed. It can't help you to do better. And that's what Paul means with the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's victory over death, not only guarantees our resurrection, but that the end of the story is going to be uh, ever, better than we ever expected. That God changes everything that was bad to good. He defeats every enemy. He makes every wrong right. Everything unjust just. He wipes the tears from every eye. He embraces us. He heals every disease. All these things. And we will all rejoice together saying, I am so glad 
that everything worked out just the way it did. Isn't that true? That's the promise of the resurrection, that one day even our great enemy death will be defeated, and we will see that God has made everything that was wrong right. He has made everything new. That's why human beings have a need for a happy ending. If you're a Marvel fan, you'll remember uh, Infinity War. Remember how Infinity War ended? Half the world is dead. Half the superheroes are dead. It's just a horrible ending to a movie, right? But you know, there's a sequel <laughs> where everything's up. But what if there hadn't been a sequel? What if, there, what if the, the, it just ended that way? Everybody's dead. All your heroes are dead. People who live are just sad. You wouldn't go to the movie, right? We need a happy ending. I don't like movies that have sad endings. I found this in the same with the 49ers. It, it, <laughs> it used to be that when the, when the 49ers had the early game on Sundays, I would tape it so I could watch it during the afternoon during the normal time to watch 49ers. And, uh, but I, I found that, when, and, and I'd always be very careful, don't listen to the radio, don't turn on the TV, I don't wanna know the score, right? The problem was, I'd get to the end of the game, if they lost the game, I'd just be kicking myself for wasting the afternoon watching the stupid game. Because I don't like to watch the 49ers play. I like to watch the 49ers win. <laughs> so now, I find out the score before I watch the game. <laughs> and if they lose, I won't watch the game because it's, it's not a happy ending. I'm not going to enjoy it. But if, but if I know they're going to win, then I can enjoy the, oh, he threw an interception. Big deal. You know, it's going it's to be fine. Everything's going to be cool. That's why... Human beings, even though we have no evidence for this, we need a happy ending. Because God has put that in us, that need, that everything's going to work out. That, that the guilty will be punished, the righteous will be rewarded, every disease will be healed, everybody will be happy in the end. Isn't that true? And that's what Paul is saying. Okay. That's when it's going to happen. Now, I want you to see how Paul applies this now to the lives of the people he's writing to, the Corinthians. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. If I believe I'm going to live forever, if I believe that there's going to be a happy ending, if I believe we're all going to be raised from the dead to live forever, I will abound in the work of the Lord today. I will uh, make sure I'm rich towards God in how I use my money. I'll not worry about my health, knowing that God is using these health problems to, to produce great spiritual riches in me. And I will make sure that I am not working for that which perishes, but that Jesus said that which endures to eternal life. So what's the work of the Lord we're to abound in? That's the question I want to talk about this morning. What do we live for? What's our purpose in life? And, and to answer this question, I want to look back at Paul. Paul believed he was going to live forever. 
So what did Paul devote his life to? That's where we're going, okay? And I have three things. First of all, because Paul believed in the resurrection, he valued pleasing God over pleasing himself. Pleasing God over pleasing himself. One of my best friends, when he was a kid, uh, they had an incinerator out in their backyard. And I don't think these are even legal now, but back then, you could, if you had trash or something, you could just burn it in the incinerator. And he loved to burn things. He would always find something to burn. And one day he decided to burn a house. So, so he got all this cardboard and stuff and started making his house. And the neighbor girl saw him and she said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm making a house. She got really excited. And so she brought uh, cloth over for curtains and, and paint and all this stuff. And they spent the whole afternoon working on this house. And it was, it, once it was perfect, he picked it up with an evil grin and starts walking for the incinerator. Well, she starts to cry because she was going to go home and get her dolls. If she had known the destiny of that house, she never would have invested an afternoon working on it, right? And that's kind of the idea here. If we realize that so much that we're concerned about here is going to burn and, and we will focus on the things that won't burn, the things that, that please God. And that's the point here. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We looked at 2 Corinthians 4 last week uh, when we, where Paul says, though my outer man is decaying, my inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for me an eternal weight of glory. And then he talks about how God has prepared a new body for him. But then he says, therefore, since we will live forever... We also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, whether in this body or, or absent, to be pleasing to him. Every human being is born with an ambition to please ourselves. Isn't that true? And, and, I'm, and that, that ambition is still alive and well in me. Um, I was driving yesterday home from swimming, and I was turning left on on our street, and in front of me was this big truck who was going incredibly slow. I mean, it just, I mean, could it maybe five miles. The guy's being very careful. He's driving here. And I was incensed that I was inconvenienced by this truck. I, what are you doing driving on a residential street? You can't have any purpose here on early Saturday morning. I had, and I was just amazed how petty I am. And how self-centered I am and how I just, it's all about me, my convenience. But Paul says, because he will live to, uh, forever, his, his ambition is to please God. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, wait a minute. What's this judgment seat? I thought Jesus said, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into judgment, but has passed from judgment into life. And Paul says, well, we've got to stand before the judgment seat. How do you, how do you reconcile those two things? There are two judgments in the Bible. One is for sin. And if you've put your faith in Christ, he has already borne that judgment for you. The Bible says you're holy 
and blameless and righteous in God's sight, which God has given you as a gift because Christ died for your sins. And you will never come into judgment. You have passed from death into life. It's good news, isn't it? But there's another judgment. And it's a judgment for believers. It's a judgment for rewards. In fact, the, the word for judgment seat that Paul uses here was the, the award seat at the Olympics where the awards were handed out. That's the word he says here. And so Paul says, because I believe that God is going to ask me about what I did for him on earth, my, my goal here is to please him and do what he wants me to do. The test of my life is not, did I reach my goals? The test of my life is not how well-liked I am or how famous I am or, or how comfortable I am or, or uh, how much I'm loved. The test of my life doesn't happen until I stand before Christ and he either says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. Now be in charge of many things, enter into the joy of your master, or, oh, John, um, I'm sorry we don't have another life for you to live to do better. That's okay. Come on into heaven anyway. When I stand before Christ, I want him to say, well done. And that's Paul's point. That if I really believe I'm going to live forever, that I'm going to live for what, what lasts. Is your ambition to please God or to please yourself? Because all of us have an ambition to please ourselves, don't we? And that's an ambition I have to say no to daily. And what I try to think of, what will be most important to me on the day I meet Christ? That's what I'm trying to make most important to me on this day. Does that make sense? So the first question is, Am I living to please God? Or am I living to please myself? That's it. Well, what pleases God? Let's look at Paul in Philippians 3. Paul valued knowing Christ and becoming like Christ over all worldly attainments and achievements. Look what he says in Philippians 3, 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. Paul, before he became a Christian, was one of the most prominent Jews in the world. He had been educated under uh, Gamaliel, one of the foremost scholars. He was an expert in the law. Uh, he was zealous. He was uh, part of the, the Jewish program of exterminating Christians. He was well-liked. He was well, really respected as an up-and-coming young Jew, what every Jew should, should consider himself. And he says, I count all that loss. I count all that as wasted time in comparison with knowing Christ, for whom I've suffered the loss of all those things. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness 
which comes from God on the basis of faith. What was Paul's ambition? His ambition is to please God. What does that mean? His ambition was to know Christ, that he knew he had been created to know Christ, to have a relationship with him, and that was more important to him than anything else. Jesus says in John 17:3, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just life piled on life. It is a quality of life, and it is a quality of life of knowing Christ, walking with Christ, getting to know him more and more. Uh, in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, uh, God says, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Some people boast in their, their physical power or political power, or any kind of power. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Other people find their security in their riches and all that they've accomplished. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Some people boast in their intellectual uh, attainments. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness on the earth. God says, make your ambition the right ambition to know me. And that's really what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? It's to have a relationship with Christ and to spend your life getting to know him better and better and better. But I found, like most of you, that, that serving Christ is either easier than seeking Christ. Have you found that? It's easier to do things for Jesus than to get to know him. And yet I find that when I substitute anything else, even good things, for knowing Christ and, and developing a close relationship, everything dries up. Everything goes bad. Sin becomes a bigger reality. Christ becomes a smaller reality. My life is boring. And it's always the same thing. I repent. I make my primary ambition to know him, get to know him, spend time with him daily in the word and in prayer obey him, follow him, and that's when life comes back together, regardless of whatever else. So Paul's ambition is to know Christ, and knowing Christ means becoming like Christ, because the more you know him, the more like him you'll, you'll be. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. God is in the process of making Christians like Jesus, right? That conforming us to the image of Christ. Paul says to the Galatians, I'm in labor until Christ is formed in you. That's what Christ, what we get from God is he makes us like Jesus. And what God gets from us is a bunch of people who are just like Jesus. That's God's problem. And so Paul says, I want to know him. I also want to know his power, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to experience everything he experienced so I can experience his power. He explains in chapter 12 of, of 2 Corinthians how God makes us weak. He makes us, gives us sufferings. We, we experience the sufferings that Jesus experienced, sufferings of obeying him, so that we can experience, we stop depending on ourselves and start depending on him. We experience his power all the more. Point is, everything Paul goes through, he sees it in making him more and more like Christ. Experiencing his power, experiencing his suffering. And uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Some of, the, some of the stupid things I've done 
things that were concerning me because I wasn't like Christ. And uh, I used to be concerned about reputation and, and our church being the best church and got mad when people left our church to go somewhere else. And, and now I look back at that. How stupid was that? That's not like Jesus at all. Jesus is totally selfless. Jesus is concerned about all that God is doing, not just your little part and all these things. And, and the thing that's given me peace over the years is learning to walk like Jesus, getting, becoming like Jesus. I, I've done a study the last couple of years of just taking a paragraph out of the Gospels every day and just saying, what's Jesus like? What do I learn from this? And I've learned so much, so much practical stuff of how to walk like Jesus. And I find that, that the more I do that, the more of his joy I experience the more of him I experience. That's Paul's point. The important thing to Paul was to know Christ and to become like him. Does that make sense? So if I'm ambitious for the things God is ambitious for, that's what I'm going to be ambitious for because that's where the points are going to be on the final. Finally, Paul valued living for Christ living as Christ lived over worldly comforts and fame. He says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is a person who attaches themselves to a master in order to become like that master, right? And we are all called to be disciples of Jesus, which means we are called to follow him, to live the way that he lived. In fact, Jesus says it is enough for the disciple that he becomes as his teacher and as a slave as his master. It's the only thing that will be enough. The only thing that will satisfy us in this life is becoming like Christ and walking as he walked. So that brings the question is, how did Christ walk? How did Christ live? If I'm going to copy Jesus, if I'm going to be an imitator of Jesus, if I'm going to do what Jesus did, what's that mean? Well, Jesus says in John uh, 17, 18, he prays, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So apparently the mission that God sent Jesus on is the mission Jesus is sending us on. Jesus comes into the world as a human being, totally dependent on his Father. And his Father performs his works through him so his Father can reveal himself to the world through him. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of, the, of God has explained him. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So God works through Jesus to do things only God can do so people can see God. And then Jesus says, the works I do, you'll do also because I've gone to the Father. So what did Jesus do? Really, to sum it all up, he did good works. He spoke good words, didn't he? He did good works. Jesus healed people nobody else could heal. He... Uh, Open the eyes of those born blind. He befriended the friendless. He fed the hungry. He took care of people nobody else cared about. Everything Jesus did was done to show that God is good. No one is good but God. And every good thing 
bestowed. And every gift is from above, coming from God. And that God is good both to the wicked and to the good. And that's why Jesus, people gave God praise when Jesus did miracles. Because they said only God could do this. I, I think at the time that I was reading this week, Jesus healed a woman uh, who was bleeding internally. And actually, God healed her through Jesus. Jesus didn't even know she was there until he felt the power going out of him as God healed this woman. He said, who touched me? And she was embarrassed because she hoped nobody would notice. So she gave him the whole story. But it just strikes me that God used Jesus even when Jesus didn't know he was being used. Because he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. I only do what the Father gives me to do. I, I say nothing on my own initiative. I didn't even come on my own initiative, but I was sent. So that says we should be doing good works in the world to show that God is good. It's great uh, being introduced to Chelsea this morning. I, I remember the way our church got involved in serving the community. Um, a good friend of mine was writing a book on how churches are doing good in the world. And so he had to interview four pastors in L.A. And Jeff, who had just graduated from high school, and I were down there. So he said, you want to come visit with these guys? I said, sure. So we visited four churches that day in Los Angeles. Um, first, African Methodist Episcopal, our fame. Um, Angeles Church of God. Um, Mosaic and the Dream Center. And it was like I was reading the fifth gospel because I'd never heard of anything like these churches were doing. They were, they were training, giving, they had job training for people. They were helping the homeless. They were feeding people. They were providing housing. They were doing, I mean, they were all really, had all these community programs going. And we asked them, why are you guys doing this? And they always said the same thing, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. The gospel is the only thing going to save people. This just gets people's attention. It shows them that we believe in a God who does good. A God that helps people who are hurting. A God who relieves pain. And we came back changed. I came back changed. I said, we got to do that here. And that's when, gosh, 20 years ago, we began to get involved in community service. And now you've, you can see some of the things we're involved in. But we should be doing good. How are you doing good? Would people who know you say this person believes that God is good? Because a lot of us are pretty selfish and just take care of ourselves. But Jesus says, and this is what Jesus did, if I'm going to do what Jesus did, I'm going to help those who need help in the name of Jesus so they can see that God is good and God cares about them. So Jesus did good. He preached good. He said, I say nothing on my own initiative, but I only say what the Father gives me. Jesus is the most biblical person in the Bible. I'm, have you ever noticed that? He's always saying, it is written. It is written. Have you not read? Didn't you read this? Jesus taught who God was. He taught what the Word of God teaches. He corrected people's misunderstandings. He rebuked their sin. He he. he gave the word of God to people, and in doing so, he made disciples. People believed him and followed him, 
And he taught those disciples to make disciples too. In fact, in John 17, when Jesus gets to the end of his uh, time here, he's praying to God, he's saying, it's time for me to come home. He says, the work you gave me to do, I've done it all. I mean, wouldn't you let, like to be able to say that to God? God, all the stuff you gave me to do, I'm done. And then he tells what the work was. The men you gave me have come to believe that I came from you and that all the words you gave me, I've given to them. And now he sends them out to do the same thing he does. And so if I'm walking like Jesus, I'll do good and I'll make disciples. And all you, making a disciple is just reading the Bible with somebody else on a regular basis, helping them to understand the Bible so that they can go out and make disciples too. So those are the things. If I really believe in eternity, Paul says, uh, who is my glory and crown to the Thessalonians? Is it not you in the presence of Jesus? You are my eternal reward. He says to the Philippians uh, that please learn to obey now so in the day of Christ, when the day Christ returns, I will have reason to glory. Paul saw his reward before Christ, the disciples who would be there because of him. And I think the same thing is true of us. So if you're going to follow Christ and imitate Christ, you're going to do good and you're going to make disciples. Does that make sense? Real simple. Here's some questions. Are you living today like someone who believes they will live forever? Is your ambition to please God or please yourself? Is your goal to know Jesus and become like him? Are you imitating Jesus with good works and good words? Are you making disciples? I love the story of Noah because uh, Noah's whole life changed when God spoke to him. And God said, I'm going to send a flood. I'm going to end all life, and I want you to build an ark. Anybody know how long it took Noah to build the ark? 100 years. For 100 years, Noah lived for the coming flood because God said it was coming. Everybody else lived for today. Everybody else pursued their own ambition, did what, was, what made them happy. What Noah worked on the ark. I'm sure it got kind of boring building that ark while everybody else was having fun. And I'm sure he got a little abuse. So, Noah, how are you going to get this boat to the water? Well, I figured the water would come to me. But one day, everybody stopped laughing when they started treading water. And the scripture was filled by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, and reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah's life changed when he believed what God said about the future. And God has told us what our future holds. We can live our life in light of what everybody else is living for now, or we can live in light of the future. That's our choice. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for calling us into your family to live forever. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to lay aside all the things that keep us tied to this world. 
Help us to live as people who truly believe we'll live forever and to work for the things which don't perish, which are eternal. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.